0: I want to invite you to turn to your Bibles to John chapter 12 and the slide that's on the screen. If you use the Bible, will tell you the page number. If you're using the Version Bible app on your phone or your tablet, those instructions will get you right to our scripture this morning. John chapter 12, you're going to be looking for verse 12. And as you're finding that scripture, expectations, expectations, strong beliefs that something will happen or will be expectations. We all have them. We are forming them constantly. An appointment is made and we're about to meet someone we've never met before. We ask questions. We try to get some background on this person. Maybe see a picture or hear a story or two. We wonder what he or she will be like. People keep telling us about this great place to go. A restaurant, a vacation spot, they rave about it. They tell us to prepare, what to prepare ourselves for. They insist we just have to go there. We question whether our experience will measure up to all the hype. Expectations. We all have them. We are tempted to build, to raise our expectations, but we want them to be met. And few people, few experiences ever exceed our expectations so we often adjust them right lower them because nothing is worse when something or someone doesn't live up to our expectations what about jesus what are our expectations about jesus whenever we meet him what are your expectations in terms of how jesus is moving How Jesus will work in your life. Today, we're going to consider the expectations others had about Jesus. We're going to consider their expectations as reflecting upon our own expectations. As I was saying, as we turn to the middle of John chapter 12, years of teaching, miraculous healings, declaring the kingdom of God, the long-awaited arrival of the kingdom of God, is here, it all culminates in Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. If those Bibles are open, the slide that's going to come up on the screen will introduce us to what happens in this moment. The great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Skipping down a couple of verses, we learn a little bit more about this crowd. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. Jesus' arrival, John tells us, comes in the midst of the celebration of Passover, the remembrance of God's gracious act of deliverance of Israel. The observance of this national holiday always draws a crowd. Jesus, who was previously Elsewhere comes for this festival, and Jews who were previously scattered throughout the known world during the time of the exile of Israel come home, as it were, every year to the royal city established by David, the home of the temple of the Lord. Historians tell us, in fact, that the normal population of about 250,000 in Jerusalem swelled up to about one million people during the Passover celebration. And Jesus, as he makes his way into the city, this is important, doesn't bring with him some great processional. He doesn't come with his own events coordinator. His visit, his entry into Jerusalem, isn't prearranged or pre staged by his press agent. No, John specifically tells us the word has gotten out about Jesus. Specifically, his latest miracle of raising a man as dead as a doornail back to life. The great crowds that gather and form this spontaneous parade, in other words, are those who are already in Jerusalem. They leave whatever they've been doing, whatever preparations they were making for this holiday, to catch a glimpse and to give a cheer for the one they've heard so much about. If you look to the next slide, we hear more about what this crowd was doing. They took palm branches, John tells us, and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! The people flocked to Jesus, palm branches in hand, waving them back and forth. These palm branches, most likely brought up by these pilgrims to Jerusalem from the city of Jericho, which was also known as the city of Palms, were once the national symbol of Israel. The palm branch was the emblem used on the coins from the Maccabean revolt when a successful revolution was led against Israel's oppressors by the IV Epiphanes. But that was decades ago. A brief moment of independence for Israel, soon overtaken by the occupation of the Roman Empire. It's against this backdrop of the past and the present that the people wave a deeply engraved icon of liberation and victory. And just in case anyone might miss that sign, the crowd lend their voices to their demonstration. As Jesus passes by, they extend the standard Passover greeting to him. This greeting comes from Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is the typical welcome offered by the priest to all the pilgrims when they enter Jerusalem for the Passover. However, here you'll notice the standard greeting is being modified to focus exclusively on Jesus, personally on Jesus. These throngs of people directly address Jesus as the king of Israel. They shout their praises to him with the word Hosanna, which means save us or save us, we pray. Everyone waving branches in the crowd places their expectations on Jesus. In perceiving Jesus as the true king of Israel, their promised Messiah, they anticipate a political revolutionary who has come at last for a showdown with the powers that be. They expect someone who will overthrow the status quo, the baseline established by the reign of Caesar. Their perceptions of Jesus couldn't be more right, even as their expectations are fundamentally wrong. We learn about Jesus's posture to this whole thing, as you'll see on the next slide. John tells us, Jesus found a donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Jesus, for his part, John tells us, arrives humbly, not riding or mounted on a war chariot, but seated on the back of a donkey. Jesus' mode of travel, John tells us, is an intentional choice. Riding on the back of a donkey, Jesus is fulfilling an ancient prophecy from Zechariah. And if we were to go back to Zechariah 9, what John is quoting, if we were to read the larger context of Zechariah's words being invoked by John, we would discover that what Zechariah has to say, what he offers, is a prophetic correction of political expectations. The heart of the promise of the Lord expressed through Zechariah was the gift of the healing of the nations, but not by force. Not exercised through the power of armies come down from heaven. No, what Zechariah promises is the institution of God's universal reign through a surprisingly divinely orchestrated offering of peace. In other words, Jesus seated on an ass, slowly shuffling into Jerusalem, is more than just a passing scripture reference in that image that John gives us is a silent rebuke of false messiahism based on political maneuvering and military might. It was a word from the Lord that was ignored then, and it's a word from the Lord that continues to be ignored now. Jesus, later on in this passage, has something to say in terms of those kind of expectations. As the next slide will show you later on in this verse, Jesus says, now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John adds, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Here, a little later in this passage, Jesus asserts a showdown is indeed coming with the powers that be. The status quo is indeed about to be overturned by Jesus, but not in the way anyone expects. Jesus declares there will be a reckoning. The sins of the world will be judged, and the consequences of the world's guilt will be borne, not by us, though, but poured out on him. All accounts will be settled. All debts will be paid by Jesus. Expectations for a revolution will come later, three days later, after the foot of the cross, and in the garden of an empty tomb as death is put in its grave. And the net result, as Jesus talks about here, is that the devil will be driven out and the world will be drawn to Christ. You gotta understand All this is not what the crowd expected as Jesus entered their lives. But what about the rest of those who were there? What about the disciples? What about the religious leadership? What did they expect? John tells us that too, as you'll see on the next slide. We learn at first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize these things that had been written about him. And then moving on and talking about the Pharisees, John tells us the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. John, who was one of the original followers of Jesus, here is refreshingly honest with us. He and the rest of the disciples didn't get what was happening at all. They struggled to reconcile how all this, what was going on right in front of them, fit into their expectations of Jesus. As we'll learn in a few days, as we continue on through Holy Week, they all had expectations just like the rest. But here, in this moment, they didn't know what to do with them, with their expectations, how to reconcile them in terms of what was happening. The Pharisees, on the other hand, believed they were witnessing, much to their concern and dismay, their expectations about Jesus coming true. You might remember, and it wasn't that long ago, just a chapter, just earlier on in this chapter, the religious leadership had already purposed to kill Jesus after he raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus, you see, was attracting too much attention, attention they figured that eventually would draw the notice of Rome, attention that immediately was taking away the focus from them, the rigid religious establishment, as they observe in this moment, the world has gone after, them, after him. What they anticipated becomes a reality. Because as John shares with us in a brief aside, there's truth in their perceptions. The truth of their perceptions is even greater than they comprehend. As the next slide will show you, John adds something that just comes right out of this prophetic word unbeknownst to them by the religious leadership. Because John tells us now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. The Pharisees were right. The world is indeed starting to follow after Jesus. Some Gentiles, some outsiders to the Jewish faith, specifically Greeks, approach the disciples. They come to Philip, the disciple of Jesus, who already has a very Greek name, and ask for an audience with Jesus. Something to think about. More than likely, they came. This happens after Palm Sunday. They came after witnessing something remarkable. John doesn't talk about this in his gospel, but elsewhere in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, immediately after Jesus enters Jerusalem, he heads for the temple and cleanses it. Do you remember this? Jesus is horrified after discovering traders and other merchants congesting and therefore basically eliminating a space set apart in the temple for outsiders for outsiders to worship and pray to the Lord. He expels them from what is known as the court of the Gentiles. Observing Jesus perform this radical act of advocacy on their behalf leads these Greeks to knock on his door. And theirs is a simple but beautiful request. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I don't know if you heard it the first time I said it, but their request parallels the intentional phrase Jesus himself has used throughout John's gospel, first to the disciples and then to others who have followed him. Do you remember it? What does Jesus often say? Come and see. Sir, we want to see Jesus. The Pharisees are right. As these outsiders, these Greeks, step forward in faith, they represent a sign of the promise that Jesus comes for all the world. This seemingly minor and yet significant incident reminds the religious leadership and us, the world does indeed turn Toward Jesus, But the world turns not by our hands, not by our plans, not by our efforts, not by our will. The world turns according to the plans, the purposes, and the will of our creator. But the Pharisees refused to see this. Previously, they had tried to head off Jesus' coronation multiple times by unsuccessfully trying to have Jesus stoned to death. Now, witnessing Jesus' reception by the crowd on his way into Jerusalem, the religious leadership become even more convinced Jesus must be put to death. Their expectation is for him to be eliminated, forgotten. But as the religious leadership now conspire to have him falsely accused, convicted, and sentenced to die in trying to stop Jesus from being lifted up as king, they are actually playing right into God's hands. John tells us this further in this passage, as the next slide will show us. Jesus speaks, he replies, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Something to notice is everyone in this story thinks they are working according to their own timing. Everyone in this story thinks they are working according to their own timing. The crowds perceive themselves through their reception as inaugurating Jesus as their king. The religious leadership believe things are unfolding according to their timetable, their countdown to Jesus's demise. But as Jesus here unmistakably declares what is happening, what is about to happen is in the Lord's time, according to God's expectations. Jesus enters the city and comes forward as our king of his own accord. The crowd's ascription of blessing towards Jesus is spot on, but not because of their decision as the gathered crowd, when they say, blessed is he, they are right, but it's true because of what they say. Blessed is he because he comes in the name of the Lord, even as their opinion of Jesus will dramatically shift and turn into a curse. Jesus remains blessed because he comes in the timing and of the name of the Lord. The timing is right, not because it's the crowd's timing. Remember, In John's gospel, they wanted to make Jesus king by force a while back ago, after he miraculously fed more than 5,000 people in the wilderness. But Jesus, you remember, would have none of that back then. The timing is right for Jesus now, because it's the Father's timing. Jesus won't back down now from what he comes to do, because the time is now. The religious leadership perceive themselves with all their plotting and planning to be taking Jesus' life from him. In their eyes, Jesus' triumphal entry is nothing more than a death march. But as Jesus makes clear, as John tells us, he is aware of what he is doing. As he will assert later, no one takes his life from him. Jesus offers his life willingly. Jesus, beloved, is not going to be glorified in spite of his death. Jesus is going to be glorified through his death on the cross. As he describes it here, Jesus understands the impact of self-sacrifice. There can be no fruit from the seed that is planted in the ground unless it dies. The glory of the seed is in its dying in the ground, so that it bears much fruit. Jesus gives his life for the good of the world. The victory is that Jesus voluntarily walks to his death, and through his death comes the life we were meant to live. Great expectations. The crowd had them, the disciples had them, the religious leadership had them, we have them too. The crowd, this crowd is not the first to lay their expectations on Jesus. These disciples are not the only ones to place their expectations on Jesus. And this hasn't been the last group of religious leaders who've struggled when Jesus hasn't fit into their expectations of him. So the question for us this morning is what expectations are we laying on Jesus as we enter Holy Week. I'm not asking us what expectations we have of Jesus in terms of Holy Week, because unlike the crowd, the first disciples, and the religious leadership, we know what happens next. We know how it all turns out. Hindsight, as they say, is twenty I'm asking, what expectations do we have of Jesus today? This Holy Week right here, right now. Because, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, this is what the whole journey of Holy Week represents. This is what the whole experience of Holy Week is all about. This is why we don't just go from Sunday to Sunday this week, but we come a couple of extra days. Because beyond the specific, historical, life-changing steps Jesus takes upon our behalf, these next seven days serve as a parable for every day, every moment in our journey with Christ. They serve as a parable in terms of how we anticipate and navigate what we expect, how we want it all to work out, the way we perceive all of it is and all of it should unfold. I mean, people, we are happy to wave palms and sing his praises so long as Jesus is our kind of king, the kind of king we're expecting. We will shout, Jesus is Lord, provided he conforms to our political views and economic decisions we will pray and cry out to Jesus, Hosanna, save us! If Jesus delivers the outcome to our prayers, the sort of salvation we're looking for. Beloved, you gotta hear this this morning. The confession Jesus is Lord is accurate of Jesus if Jesus is the one who controls the definition of that title. If Jesus' lordship rises and falls by our human expectations and experience, then Jesus isn't lord. We are lording our expectations and definitions over him. We are co-opting the power of God for our human desires and ambitions. And that's not worship. That's idolatry. We need to be clear that as we wave palms and sing together, we are joining with those who are there in celebrating our expectations. We all have great expectations of Jesus, but the question is, are those expectations ours or the Lord's? Are we following, in other words? Are we living out of our expectations of Jesus or are we following, are we living out of God's expectations for us in Christ? Our King, our Lord, our Savior comes. If we would follow Jesus this week, every day of our lives, we have to begin by recognizing and naming our expectations of him. We have to face our expectations of Jesus. And then by the grace of God, we have to let them go. Jesus tells us this here again in John chapter 12, straight up. The slide that's coming on the screen will show you exactly what Jesus says. Jesus says, anyone who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Beloved, our relationship with Jesus is not about the occasional parade, the Sunday worship service where we praise the name of Jesus because Christ is meeting our expectations. Listen to these words again. Where Jesus is, there the servant of Jesus will be also. To be in relationship with Jesus, to be saved by Jesus is to share his life To follow Christ, to follow Jesus is to go where he goes, to be where he is, to live his life, to live out of his expectations for us, not our expectations of him. So where is Jesus going? How does Jesus live? Well, that's why we're here, right? Now suddenly Holy Week gets real. Jesus is walking towards the cross. Jesus did not come to preserve his own life. He certainly could have done so. Again, no one could take his life from him. But Jesus willingly volunteers his life for the sake of the harvest, for the fruitfulness of our lives. If we would follow Jesus, if we would live in Christ, then we must die to our expectations. And instead... Discover and embody God's expectations for us, for the world in Christ. The Apostle Paul who you know had a tremendous conversion experience, who was on the opposite side of this, who would have been in the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him. The apostle Paul, in his journey of faith with Christ, once summed up exactly what what the word of God is telling us this morning beautifully. When he wrote in his letter to the Galatians, it's gonna be on the slide that comes up on the screen. It's a a scripture I have memorized. To me, it's a blessing. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ Christ who lives in me and the life I now live. I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Paul is writing, what Paul is saying, not just for himself, but for all of us is my life is not about me anymore. My life is not just about pandering to my own interests, constantly making my will and desires. The focus My life is Christ who is living in me. Jesus is the one who gives me life. Jesus is the one who keeps me alive. Therefore, my life becomes shaped by who Jesus is, how Jesus lives, and where Jesus is calling me. This is radical. This is a complete inversion of how we often hear it, how we often frame it. I want to say something to you, and there's not enough time for me to go further than what I'm about to say, but I can honestly stand before you. There are a few things I can say as definitively as this, but I can honestly say the best things I have ever experienced. Any fruitfulness in my life have come when, by the grace of God, I was able to let go of my expectations, what I want, what I desire, what I try to will, and instead learn to seek and embrace God's expectations for me. What he longs for, what he commits to, what he wills for my marriage, for me as a parent, for me becoming a pastor, I never expected to end up here. We've talked about this before. This wasn't my will, my want or my desire. And even serving as your pastor. I'm a train wreck. I'm dangerous. Run and hide. <laughs> Don't miss the last part. I'm a train wreck. I'm dangerous. Run and hide when I am pastoring you based upon my expectations. What I want, what I desire, What I will, but I am your pastor. I have been called. Thus saith the Lord, I speak and serve humbly. It is on holy ground upon which I stand, and I don't take it lightly when what is desired, what is willed, what is wanted is not what I want. But when we together open up the word of God and listen to the spirit and discern, this is what God wants. This is what God wills. This is what God desires for us. I know it's hokey. I know it's a catchphrase. But I'm going to say it anyway because it's true. Each and every time in my life, I can testify, and I'm doing it right now in front of you. If the Spirit has called me to do it, then the Lord has more than equipped me to see it through. And in all other cases, if the Spirit hasn't called me to do it, I am just faking it in order to make it. And I can tell you from personal experience, that's never joyous and it rarely works out. To follow Jesus is to daily pursue, to ask like the Greeks we encounter here, we wish to see Jesus. It is to realize the depth of such a simple but beautiful request goes beyond what we could ever anticipate, often taking us to places and persons unexpected It is to gain through that simple yet beautiful request, the vision of the spirit which will open our eyes and our hearts to the people around us. It is to be prompted by that simple yet beautiful request to ask hard questions, to investigate our biases, our prejudices and our privileges more closely. It is through that simple yet beautiful request to confront things and ideas we once clung to as sacred but now have to let go of. Following Christ causes us to pay attention and to be prepared to be surprised to discover Jesus being revealed, Jesus at work in unexpected places and persons around us. Because to live by faith is to die to ourselves. And it is in dying to ourselves and living for Christ, we bear much fruit in our lives. Our lives flourish. Our lives bear fruit when we die to ourselves and live in order to unconditionally love others. To daily protect and serve those in need to lavishly extend grace and forgiveness, healing and hope to all persons, regardless of whether they deserve it, no matter whether they've earned it, and despite the fact that they ignore us, mock us, or even hurt us. This is joyous sacrifice. This is the joyous giving of our lives We live as Jesus lived because this is the only life that lasts forever. We live like this with each other because this is how Christ lived with us. And we can live this way because Christ lives in us. Because we have been embraced through the Holy Spirit by the God who will never let us go no matter how far we fall. No matter how much we run and hide, no matter how often we fail. My friends, today is the beginning of Holy Week. Seven days commemorating Jesus' decisive journey towards embracing the death we deserve and ultimately offering us the kind of life we could only ever imagine, let alone hope for the first step of that journey which we renew with Christ every day as we get up in the morning begins here on Palm Sunday by facing our expectations of Jesus. The truth is, if you haven't caught this by now, the truth is it's impossible for us to let go of our expectations, to not be disappointed, even devastated when they are not met. We are a people easily stuck and frequently lost in our unmet expectations. But beloved, hear the good news. Great expectations are before us. But the good news is those expectations are not ours to possess. They are God's expectations that he fulfills for us all. God's expectations for this world, for our lives, will be accomplished even despite ourselves. Walk this journey. Don't just show up next week on Easter. You'll miss it. Walk this journey. I know you have work. I know you have things going on. Make time to be here on Thursday. Come back on Friday. Even show up on Saturday and Easter will be a profoundly different experience for you because we are about to walk through and see despite the worst that can and will happen. The good news is we worship a God who in Christ graciously exceeds any and every expectation we have, who more than lives up to them. He dies for them so that we can be free to live out of his expectations for us. Amen.